Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of February 28th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9. We have been now for some time, work, been working our way through the book of Acts. Started this last spring. We find ourselves in the latter half of the chapter 9. We saw last week Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. We saw his conversion. We saw God send a man named Ananias to Saul to heal his blindness as a result of his encounter with Christ. And we began to see God turn a life. We saw God make a surprising choice because we remember this morning that Saul was never someone that you and I would have picked. Saul was who you and I would have been praying God would get rid of. (laughs) But yet God did in fact take care of the threat Saul was by not getting rid of him, but by converting him, by choosing him for his purposes. So as we come to Acts chapter 9, we'll see some crucial things for us this morning as we read this account. We're going to read beginning in verse 20 and reading through verse 31, and then we'll continue from there. Now for several days he, Saul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had lapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the, comf- in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Now there is some history here, and you may not realize that this verse, or this, these, these few verses here, 10 to 12 verses, probably cover a time period of almost three years. Now you go, how did that cover three years? Well, well, we'll get to that in just a few moments. But I think we'll find that the real key verse for us this morning, at least the verse that we're going to concentrate on, is actually verse 31, the end of this description of what took place in Saul's life. And it's this right here, that the church enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Peace comes, as we'll see here in Acts chapter 9 and 10, we've seen throughout this entire book already, and we'll continue to do so. Peace comes not so much from an absence of problems, but peace comes for the believer in obedience and faith in the midst of problems. The peace that's talked about in Acts 
9.31 is not a peace that comes because we don't have any problems. It's not a peace that comes because you and I have everything going our way and everything is smooth and there's no issues. It's not that peace. It's a peace that comes in the middle of those things because as God's people, we have, as verse 31 says, a fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit and our being built up in our faith. And so as we look at this chapter, that's when we want to look at those things in Paul's life and in the life of the early church. Now, we picked up from last week. Last week we saw Paul on the road to Damascus, an encounter with the risen Christ. As Paul has this bright light shone on him, as he falls to his knees, as Jesus himself speaks to Paul, and Paul recognizes before him stands the risen, the resurrected, the living Messiah. And Paul instantly recognizes the couple things that we talked about last week. First and foremost is this, that this Jesus, he was convinced, was still in a grave somewhere, was in fact alive and talking to him now. He was encountering face-to-face the risen and glorified Jesus. He also was recognizing that he was being chosen by this living Jesus for a reason. He ends up in a house being taken care of, and God sends a servant named Ananias to come and to be that next step in Saul's faith. And that's where we picked up. And immediately it says, for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. Some of them, like Ananias was initially, a little skeptical about this guy who now seems to be on the inside, but was just a couple days ago trying to arrest them all. So you can imagine a little bit of skepticism there. But he immediately begins to proclaim the name of Christ. He immediately begins to tell people, and not just his own experience, but from Scripture, what we would call the Old Testament, he proves to them how Jesus is, in fact, the, the, the promised Messiah of God's work throughout all of history. He proves to them through the old, what we call the Old Testament, through Scripture, time and time again, how all these things point to Jesus. And now that this Jesus Christ is, in fact, alive, He's encountered him, he has seen him, and he's going to tell them all about it. And you may think to yourselves, wow, Paul or Saul is bold here, but if you'd seen someone who was dead, alive, you'd probably be talking about it too. Wouldn't you? If it was somebody you knew was dead, you were, cons- you were absolutely positive they had been buried and they weren't going to live anymore, and you saw them alive, it'd probably be a point of conversation. And we do need to realize, we need to remember that as often as we talk about that, for many of us this morning, we've heard about the stories of Jesus' resurrection all our lives. We almost take it as a a thing just to give us. What we do is we talk about Jesus' resurrection. And it's just kind of matter of fact for most of us. But we need to understand the gravity, the the immensity, if you will, of what you and I say we believe this morning. You and I are here this morning, not because... There is some good moral teachings here. Not because we all agree politically. Not because we want just to help our community. We are here this morning because we say we believe that there was one who died and is now alive. And because he is that, everything he said means something. And among those things he said, if you will trust that I have done these things, you too will get the same thing I've gotten, and that is you will have resurrection as well. We are claiming a stupendous thing. Paul has seen it firsthand, and he can't help but talk about it. And so he does. 
It says they were all amazed at everything he was saying and how skilled he was in proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, verse 23 says, when many days had elapsed. I want to, I want to share with you here, uh, Luke says here as the authors, oh, after a while, after some time had passed, after a long time had passed, this has probably been three years. Now, what's going on in three years here? Well, if we were to go to Galatians chapter 1, and we're not going to go there right now, but I would just refer you to it. Galatians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. These are two places that Paul is giving us some biographical information. And what we know happens here is that once he was in Damascus and came to know Christ, he left not long after that for some time in Arabia, what we now know today to be the, what was called the Nabataean kingdom. It's essentially modern-day Jordan, or maybe modern-day northern parts of Saudi Arabia. And he spent probably upwards of three years there. Um, now, he didn't just go be a monk. He, he, he went and he studied and he learned, he prepared, but he also shared the gospel. And after that period of time, he comes back to Damascus. And if we put some pieces together, we find out that probably what had happened is he had ruffled some feathers while he was in Arabia, and that the leader of Arabia, we know, had a, a representative of, uh, in Damascus, and it appears likely that that leader from, uh, from Arabia and the Jews who were in Damascus got together to try to kill Saul. That's over a three-year period. And that's, of course, when they lower him out of the basket because they're trying to get him out of town. So Saul is, you might say here, a basket case. I know, dad joke, sorry. At least I know you're awake now. That's right. <laughs> so Saul gets out of there, and of course he goes to uh, Jerusalem and uh, begins to encounter the exact same things he encountered in Damascus. Uh, he encounters initially some skepticism. Are we really sure this guy who was out trying to kill us a couple years ago is really on our side now, or is he just playing a game so he could trap us? And God sends a guy named Barnabas. Now, we saw Barnabas earlier on in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and Barnabas will be very instrumental moving forward to the book of Acts. In fact, he'll be a missions partner along with Saul, Paul. And Barnabas is used by God to encourage the disciples in Jerusalem to recognize that God is working through Saul. Now, this is a little bit of the history about what's going on. Now, all that we, we can work through all that and we can understand it. But again, I believe the key verse here is verse 31. As a result of all this, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee enjoyed peace. Now, what is the peace the church experiences here? Now, I'm sure no doubt part of it was there wasn't Saul out there trying to kill them. That probably provides a measure of peace, right? At the very least, a little bit of relief when someone's out there not trying to arrest you every time you want to worship the Lord. But as we know, all the times we talk about peace throughout the scriptures, it really, in the end, has very little to do with external circumstances. It, also, it always has more to do with the state of people's hearts before God. There's no doubt there's some peace because Saul's out there not resting anybody. But again, God's peace is very rarely has anything to do with external circumstances. This peace in Acts 31 is a peace that comes from the presence of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, as, as Jesus talks about him in John 14 and John 16. It's a peace that doesn't come from this world. You remember in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I will give to you, but not like this world gives you, but as I give you. It's a peace that comes from heaven. Now let me ask you this. What types of things in this world 
provides you a sense of peace? What is it that gives you a sense of security? What is it that gives you calm, that makes you feel better, perhaps? Again, a, a sense of peace. Let me suggest to you that the peace of Acts 9.31 is not a peace that comes from the things of this world. It's not coming from a strong police presence. It's not coming from a strong military. It's not coming from a government that believes the same things you believe. It's not peace that comes from those things. It's peace that comes from being right with and knowing the real, daily, in-your-face presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the peace that we're talking about here. It's a, it's a peace that comes from the fear of the Lord. It's not based on insurance or retirement accounts. It's not based upon anything that this world would look to to give it a sense of peace. Philippians 4. This is a passage that many of us know by heart. Paul is, at the end of Philippians, telling the people of, uh, of Philippi to listen you need peace. You want the peace that passes understanding? He says, don't, don't worry about anything, but in prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. He doesn't say you'll get what you ask for. He does say, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will be with you. God doesn't promise to give us everything we ask for. He does promise if we trust Him and come to Him in faith, if we will not be anxious and worry, He will give us His supernatural, world can't understand it, not from here, peace. And that's what this early church is encountering. By the way, he didn't say be anxious for most things or some things. He says in that Philippians passage, be anxious for what? Nothing. So how long is the list of things to be anxious about? Zero, thank you. So this peace that we're talking about in Acts 9.31 is that peace. Now look at this. He says they're enjoying peace, being built up. A good church word is the word edification. It means to be strengthened. It means to, to, to again, simply be built up. I'm not a home builder. I'm not a house builder. I don't, I don't build things. When I do build things, they don't tend to last very good. If you want to build a house, I'm not the guy you call. Let's get that out of the way. You want something to last, I'm probably not that guy. All right? My father-in-law was. When, we, uh, when, when he passed away last summer, um, he, he, was, uh, he was known for when he built something, it stayed there for a long time. Um, we, we had, uh, when we sold the house that he had been, uh, he and my mother-in-law had been in, he had built an insert in the living room to house a TV. He, 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 it wasn't part of the original house. By the way, he built the house too, so he built this insert. And we had a little water leak in that part of the house, so we had to, uh, there was old flooring underneath this insert he had built that we had to get to to remove, to repair the damage before the people who were going to buy the house moved in. And we got, to, we got to this insert and we realized, oh, this thing is not coming. This thing is like part of the house. It's, it might as well be one of the walls. It was, we had to do some major work to get this thing out. The guy who actually ended up doing it, he said, man, whoever built this didn't ever to this to ever be moved. I said, nope, that's my father-in-law. He built things to last. He says here in Acts 9 
that the church was being built up. And by the way, when God builds things, He builds them to what? He builds them to last. So He's building, He's edifying, He's in peace, building up the church. Now there's a couple of ideas, there's a couple of ways to understand that. First and foremost is this, the people of God themselves, their lives are being built. Peter will talk about later in the New Testament how we are a temple, that we are a building, that we are a, a, a holy temple being literally built up, erected, constructed, if you will, by Christ. You and I are part of a spiritual building. The church is being built up. It's also being built up on something solid. Most of you probably remember from childhood, from uh, those, one of those early stories and parables that Jesus taught about building your house, not on the sand, but on the what? On the rock. Luke chapter 6. Building your house upon the rock so that when the storms come, not if the storms come, but when the storms come, you can have what? Peace, because you have a house built on the rock, and guess what it doesn't do? It doesn't fall. Peace is not the absence of the storm. Peace is confidence and faith and obedience in Christ in the middle of the storm. It's knowing that what has been built will not be torn down by the things of this world. And this church in Acts chapter 9 has peace that comes from being built up in Christ. It's being built up in Christ, going on, it says, in the fear of the Lord. Now again, fear, we, we talk about this from time to time at church. Fear is not here what we're talking about as far as this idea of quaking in your boots and your knees knocking and all that type of stuff. That's what we tend to think of when we think of the word fear. This fear has this idea of an awe, of a respect, of finding myself confronted with something that just staggers me and drops me to my knees at the immensity and the power and the size of it. That's the idea here. Now, this idea of fear in the Lord is something that goes back a long ways. Proverbs says that blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But, and as Proverbs always does, Proverbs always contrasts things. It says, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So here in Proverbs 28, it's actually contrasting fear of the Lord with a hard heart. Interesting, you might not think about that. On the one hand, fear of the Lord. On the other hand, a hard heart leading to calamity. Isaiah 66 says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This idea of fearing, of trembling before God and His word is now associated with being humble and contrite. To look at the Lord and to recognize who He is and what He has done brings us a, a, a tender heart. It brings us humble before Him. But by, that's not just the Old Testament, by the way. The New Testament talks about fear as well. Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. Now this is interesting. It's an interesting context. We don't have time to get into that verse this morning. But interestingly enough, Fear and trembling are joined with God's work in this passage of Philippians chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 1. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Isaiah 11 speaking of the coming Messiah, says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Do you get this? 
I mean, the Bible speaks about joy. It speaks about delighting. This is, these are happy words, right? In the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not something that should, pardon me, scare us. <laughs> the fear of the Lord is something that should drive us to joy and to delight, to recognize who He is. In short, there is blessing and even joy in fearing God. This, this fear of God arises and lives in a place where God's love dwells. It's the house built on the rock. I'm not afraid of the storm because the storm can't do anything to me. And the church in Acts chapter 9 is, is living in peace and being built up because they are dwelling in the fear of the Lord and they know the joy that comes from fearing Him. They know the security that comes from fearing Him. They know the peace that comes from a right relationship with the Lord. And even if the storm comes from God, they are sheltered from that storm in the hand of God. It's Elijah in the cave in the Old Testament. The wind and the flame and all those things going around him, but he's safe, he's protected. It's Abraham asking to see asking to see God, and God says, you can't see me and live, so I'll pass by you, but I will do what? I will cover you. God protecting us. God sheltering us. God giving us security in the midst of the storm. We live in a part of the world where thunderstorms and even things like tornadoes aren't exactly uncommon. Now, if you're like me, and Angela will tease me about this from time to time, we had a when we were in North Georgia for a few years, uh, we had we had kind of a split-level house uh, sitting on the side of a hill. And, I mean, at the, the bottom of the basement level had a window out of the hill, but the backside was fully in the, the hill. And that was kind of our storm shelter, if you will. And we had some tornadoes running through the area. So what do I do when there's a tornado warning? Well, I go to the big, giant bay window that overlooks the, the hillside and go, Now, you're laughing, but how many of you do the same thing? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I see a pattern, not to stereotype, but it was all guys. <laughs> so I don't know if that means we're adventurous or stupid or both. Now, Angela, she takes Ben and Matthew downstairs into the basement where the smart people go. Now, what's fun is to watch the storm and at the same time know that you are completely sheltered. That's peace. On Wednesday nights, most of you perhaps know that we are in the course of, we're going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And we have been in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 the last couple of weeks. And 4 and 5 are kind of the, it's the vision that John has of the goings-on in heaven before all the, think, all the scary stuff happens. But here's what the Scripture is teaching us in, in, in Revelation 4 and 5. The stuff that scares the world isn't scary for the people who know who God is. You get a glimpse of who God is in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You see God in all His glory and light and majesty. You see Christ being enthroned in the center of heaven and all authority being given to Him. And when you realize that, and you realize that you're in the midst of that, everything else, it's nothing to be afraid of. They have peace 
because they are being built up in an eternal way by the Lord, because they know the fear of the Lord. Let me remind you of all this happened even here in just the first seven or eight chapters of the book of Acts. The early church has seen the mocking and the confusion of crowds at Pentecost. They have seen the healing of a lame man, and they grew as a church. The, the disciples were brought in for a good tongue lashing by the council, and the church grew. Leadership was arrested. The church grew. There was a scandal with Ananias and Sapphira. The church grew. There was another arrest. The church grew. There was conflict in the church around the taking care of widows. The church grew. Stephen was arrested and executed. The church grew and expanded. Saul began to ravage the church. And guess what happened? It just grew. Are you getting the idea? It doesn't really matter what the world does, that God always accomplishes His purposes, and He keeps His people protected in the midst of the storm. All the things that Saul himself will experience here in chapter 9, we saw. The going off to Arabia, the, the those who wanted to kill him in Damascus and in Jerusalem, the, even the skepticism of some other believers. The, the stuff that happens to Saul happened to the church, and in the middle of all of this, Saul is bold, and he's experiencing the joy, the peace, the being built up in the fear of the Lord, just like the church is. Now, this last phrase here, verse 31, is important for us. All this is happening in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we know that word comfort. In the Gospel of John, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples the night before he is crucified, he speaks to them of sending one called the Comforter. It's the exact same word here. The comfort, the coming alongside, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all this stuff happens in that context. The church is comforted by the comforter. It's, it's in the presence of Christ through his spirit. And they aren't panicky. When you have the peace of God, you aren't a panicky people. Let, let, me, let me share with you something. I mentioned this on Wednesday night. Yes, our world in the last 12 months, but it has for its, all, its entire history, our world has seen, our culture has seen, our nation has seen lots of scary things in the last 12 months. Whether it's diseases and viruses and pandemics, or whether it's politics and the policies that go along with those things, whether it's violence, our world and our country has seen a lot. And I have seen a lot of Christians become angry and scared. Let me just share this with you. Stop it! Sorry. If the people of God are panicky, it's because they're not looking at the Christ who saved them. If there is a people on earth who should never be panicky, who should never be angry, who should never be all those things that we see out in our world today, it should be the people who know who God is, who have the very presence of the Spirit within them, who knows what it means to be sheltered in the storm. And our policy is not to be angry at those in the storm, it's to invite them in. And we can do that because we know the one who has provided eternity. We know the one who has said, I conquered death, I am alive, they killed me, but I'm alive, and you will be too, trust me. And we go, okay, that's great news. We should be the most calm, unpanicky people out there. If we are those things, then we are not paying attention to our God. I don't want to get involved in politics, but Reagan was kind of known for this. Reagan, Ronald Reagan, when he became president 40, 40 years ago, actually, 
Wow, I know. I feel old. I don't want to know who wasn't born then. <laughs> One of Reagan's mantras was, in dealing especially with the uh, Soviet Union, was peace through strength. Now, whether you agree with that or not, that was the concept. If we're strong enough, then they have to respect us, then we bring peace. Let me share with you, this is what Christians are. We have peace through strength. It's not our strength. It's not because we can rally around a political party. We're not strong because we get our agenda, whether it's socially or culturally, anything else. We're not strong because of uh, pooling our resources to, to end hunger or whatever it might be. We are strong as a people because we belong to the creator of the universe. Because we belong to the one who has looked death square in the eye and defeated it and says to us, my victory is now your victory if you come over here. Because there's nothing that Jesus says to us in this world that can separate you from me, says it separates you from me, that can defeat you because of who I am. That is our peace. It's a peace through strength. It's a peace with God. And once that peace has been established through the comfort and the presence of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing else that really worries you. The result of knowing Christ, of knowing the resurrection, is a peace beyond this world's ability to understand it. Now that will mean, by the way, that those who do not know the Lord will sometimes look at you and your peace and think it odd. They will think it unfounded. They will be confused by it. They may even ridicule and mock you for it. Fine, don't get mad. Just be at peace in front of them. Share with them the peace that comes from the Lord. Because of that peace, Paul can preach and teach, and he will for the next years of his life. If you remember back earlier in this chapter, Ananias, when he's a little bit concerned <laughs> about, about Saul, about being sent to Saul, he says, Lord, are you sure you want me to go to that guy? God says to uh, Ananias about Saul, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. If you're familiar with the life of Saul, later Paul, you'll recognize he suffered a great deal. He, he encountered almost every obstacle you can possibly imagine from being arrested and beaten up to shipwrecked, bitten by snake. You, you name it, he experienced it. And yet he could do all that with peace because he had encountered and he had seen and he knew his living God. So church this morning, our goal is this. To enjoy peace. Not because everything around us is going on as we want it to, but because we know what it is to trust, to be built up, to know the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. Saul knows Jesus is alive. He knows that Stephen will resurrect. He knows the strength, he knows the source of the strength of those he had been arresting. By the way, Saul had to admit he was wrong. Now, we, we think admitting mistakes is a sign of weakness, but the reality is, before God, confession of sin is a sign of, of, of strengthening and building up. When I can admit before God that I was wrong, when I can repent, when I accept the grace of God to overcome my weaknesses, that brings a peace that the world cannot mimic or reproduce. So church, 
our strength this morning, our peace this morning is not in what you and I can do. It's not in things going our way. It's not in our retirement accounts or insurance statements. It's not in medical care or politics. It's in whether or not we have peace with God and the comfort of the Spirit.